Welcome to the Human Reboot with me, Emma Last. We have uplifting, inspiring and diverse reboot stories from people sharing the courageous, honest, authentic and sometimes difficult life lessons. The Human Reboot will provide proven mentally flourishing formulas and practical tips to help you to live life to the full, giving you direction and hope. Make your mental fitness and well-being a daily priority. Learn to pause so that you can get clear and perform at your best. Switch off to switch on. It's time for your human reboot. Before we start this episode, it may contain conversations that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel that might apply to you, you can check the show notes for more details. So today on The Human Reboot, I have Diane Brown. Diane is a wellbeing life coach and exercise psychology coach dedicated to helping women move forward in their lives. She has blended her learning and experience to create Active Wellbeing, a coaching philosophy which guides women to well-being with an active lifestyle at its foundation. Diane, I am so glad to have you here today. <laughs> Please could you tell us a little bit more about your mission? Oh, thank you, Emma. So my mission is really all about helping women see how they can move their bodies more so that they can enjoy greater well-being. Um, I come from a background of, well, a mixed background, I suppose, of being quite sporty at times. And I've done some very um, hardcore events, let's say. And other times I've completely neglected myself and not been active at all. But one thing I realised is over time is that my mental health is much, much improved when I have been physically active. And I wanted to create a way to help other women access that because exercise is so often seen as simply a route to weight loss or to try and look a certain way. And it's kind of surrounded with a lot of quite negative images around it has to be done a certain way and you force yourself to do it. And I don't want people to see it like that at all. I want people to see you can do it on your own terms in a way you enjoy and you can still get all the great well-being benefits from it. And that's why I set about developing this new approach. Brilliant. So it wouldn't be right on the Human Reboot if I didn't ask you to share one of your life's reboot stories And I am sure that our listeners will really love what you've got to share today. When myself and Diane started discussing what we might share, it was really interesting because Diane shared something that I didn't know that she had suffered from. And Diane and myself have known each other probably for the last sort of 18 months, two years. So... I really can't wait for her to share her story so vulnerably and bravely about her, well, her reboot in 2019. Thanks, Emma. Yeah, so it's interesting, isn't it? I think when we have these stories of of suffering and recovering from suffering, it's often presented in a 
a kind of a linear fashion of a, a happy ever after. So the terrible thing happens and then you recover from the terrible thing and then everything's OK. And of course, life's not like that. It's really, really messy and complicated. And so what happened with me is and where our conversation had started was around a burnout that I'd had and how I'd recovered from that and chosen this new career path for myself. And I trained as a well-being life coach and I understood the importance of taking care of myself. And so in a way, this should have been the happily ever after part. But then what happened in 2019 is I was suddenly struck down very severely with um, eco anxiety. And, you know, it's it's no joke to say it, it was like being hit by a bus. It was it was the equivalent of just being knocked down by something. I was the week before. Nobody would have guessed anything was wrong. I was going about my life, doing what I do. And then suddenly everything just stopped. It was that dramatic. And yeah, and I thought it'd be good to share some more of that with you because I don't think eco-anxiety is very well understood. It's relatively new. Um, other people do suffer from it, but I mainly know that just from what I've seen on the news, not from any kind of medical professional area. And it's I mean, it is what it sounds like. It's an anxiety around the state of the environment, climate change, um, you know, extinction threats to not just other species, but our own species. It's a very, very serious state of affairs that our planet is in right now. And increasingly, people are realising that. But because I've been quite an environmentalist at heart since a young age, perhaps the message landed with me quicker and more sharply than it did with some other people. And the, the eco-anxiety I had around things are not getting better, not enough is being done, it tipped me into severe anxiety and depression that completely floored me in 2019. So just for the benefit of our listeners, please could you kind of take us back to that day when you think almost the trigger happened? Because for me, when we discussed that really highlighted how easy this could happen to others yeah that's it and that's the thing it can happen to anybody whatever training and experience and things you've had it really can happen to anybody so the the exact time it happened and don't get me wrong there was more than one thing at play here I've been working very hard I'm not sure whether I'd been eating particularly well around the time there'll have been lots of different factors but there was distinctive triggers and tipping points, let's say. And so with me, because I'm a very solution focused person, I was really trying to find the answer to this problem. And I know it sounds ridiculous, like how am I on my own going to miraculously find the solution to climate change and fix it all by myself? But that's how my programming works. I try to solve everything. And that's a sort of instinctive so knowing how serious the situation was, and I, because I've been working in psychology from an exercise psychology point of view, so I was interested in that, I decided to read up on psychology around climate change. Because for me, the problem was that people couldn't see, couldn't understand, couldn't accept the problem, or at least not enough to seriously do something about it. So I really wanted to understand the psychology, thinking maybe I can spot something and I can fix it. 
And I read, I was reading this book and it was basically explaining in this book what the problem was and how the fundamental problem, as explained in this particular book, was around humans have self-protection, self-protection mechanisms built in. And part of that self-protection psychologically is to not see and not accept certain things and deny them. Because if you think it through logically, which I'm inclined to do, if you're going to sit there and say, oh, I can see that the human species is about to become extinct. How do you get your mind around that? I mean, it's completely it's cataclysmic stuff, isn't it? So your brain is inbuilt to resist that. It's programmed to resist that. And denying it subconsciously is part of that programming. So I'm not talking about the people that will openly, deliberately deny it for their own reasons. But subconsciously, we can deny how bad the problem is. And we can deny the extent to which we need to change our actions. And as I understood the workings of the mind and how it was being explained my inside my brain something clicked that went I can't fix this this is this is too big this is too much and although that sounds ridiculous because of course I couldn't fix it but subconsciously I hadn't realized that until that point that was the point within my mind that I accepted for the first time that this was a problem too big for me to solve And that's what tipped me over. And I know when we chatted about it before, I likened it to being given a terminal diagnosis. Because for me, the realisation that we couldn't fix this, or at least not in the way I'd hoped, was then forced me logically to admit, so things are going to continue to get worse. And the ultimate conclusion to that is not good. So it was really like I've been given a terminal diagnosis, but not just for me, but for everybody that I knew all at the same time. So this wasn't about, oh, I've just realised I'm going to die. It was like, I've just suddenly realised all my family, all my friends, my son. It, It was really traumatic. It was really deeply traumatic. And that sent me into a rapid spiral. Within 24 hours, I went from, as I say, operating normally to not even barely able to leave the house. So both of us obviously work in the field of well-being and admitting that something's wrong was probably really difficult because really, you know, as a well-being coach, we're supposed to have all the answers, aren't we? Yeah, and that added, that contributed to the shock. So I think I, I was so ill so suddenly, I didn't really have time to think about that side of things if that makes sense because it was more kind of emergency look for a life raft situation but it did make it more of a shock I mean I remember going into the GP surgery and I walked to the GP surgery because there was no way I was taking a car and putting more emissions (laughs) into the atmosphere I walked to the GP surgery in the pouring rain and I was really struggling to walk and even move move my legs. I remember this quite um, distinctly. It, I dragged myself there and I went and sat down. And one of the questions, of course, is what do you do for a living? And it was that was probably the first time it had entered my head that was like, I'm a well-being life coach. <laughs> it's like almost crying, like I'm saying it. I mean, it's just ridiculous beyond belief, but that was the truth of the situation. And and yes, I was, I was shocked. I'm like, how did I not see this coming? 
how did I not spot any warning signs? I, I was relatively looking, you know, nobody's perfect, but I was relatively looking after myself quite well. But I kind of didn't have too much time to think about that, as I say, because it was more hit the emergency button. I was going downhill so fast. I just knew I had to take action. And I think looking back, I can now see that actually because of my training and experience, I knew what to do and I knew to do it quickly. Because had I not had that training as a well-being life coach, had I not had that experience and conversations with other women and things, would I have picked myself up and dragged myself to the doctors as quickly as I did? I don't think I would. I really don't think I would. And so I really took it seriously and treated it as an emergency straight away. And looking back at the steps I took in my recovery, I can now see it was almost becoming a well-being life coach was some kind of universe preparation so that I would have all these tools at hand ready to help myself back out of this hole. So when you went into the doctors and you said, you know, that something was wrong, did you actually know that it was that eco part that had triggered it at that point? I I knew that had triggered it because I'd, I'd read you know, pretty much a sentence in a book. And I kind of physically felt so ill at the realisation that I'd slammed the book shut, threw it into the bottom of a drawer next to my bed to kind of physically push it away from myself. And I felt really sick. And it was probably two or three days before I got to the doctors. But in those two or three days, I was repeatedly physically sick. Um, sort of generally around bedtime I was waking up in the middle of the night at all weird times of day and night so I'd be like sleeping in the day up in the night I was writing my husband really weird letters about you know can you make sure that you like know where to find my money if something happens you know kind of preparing for I might not be here for much longer kind of messages writing in these messages in the middle of the night because mentally I was completely losing my grip on what was going on. Yeah. And it was, there was kind of periods of lucidness, I think you call it, where I was with it, and then periods yeah. when I wasn't. So I was almost throwing out anchors at the times that I was thinking straight. I was almost thinking, right, what anchors can I throw out now? Yeah. The next time I sink. And I've got friends that will know that will probably <laughs> listen to this. I was sending WhatsApp messages saying I'm in a really, really bad state, please can you look after my husband kind of thing to make sure somebody knew to look after him because I didn't know what was going to happen to me. So I knew that the trigger was the eco-anxiety to come back to your question because I knew the exact point when it happened, but it had triggered something else. And that and what was going on then, I didn't really understand other than a really strong feeling of I am completely losing the plot here and it's really scary. Yeah. So sat in that doctor's, what happened next? So, um, yeah, that was I, that just seemed like a really strange memory. I went into the doctor's. I think I just explained that I was like really sad and upset and I don't even know what words I used I just you know said whatever jumped in my head I remember I was looking down the whole time I couldn't even lift my head to make eye contact so like physically I was like a shell just looking down because I I suppose I saw the doctor as kind of like a 
teacher that was maybe going to tell me up or something because I felt like my behavior was so strange I was kind of scared of how he was going to react to what I was telling him but this is anxiety at play of course so everything is distorted so I told him how I was feeling and he went through a series of questions about you know how I was feeling and how often I was feeling certain ways Um, I did actually manage to laugh at one of the questions because he asked me how much I cared about my appearance on like a scale of one to ten or whatever it was and I've never cared much about my appearance so I gave it a really low score which was clearly an indicator of a problem but for me that was totally normal Um, (laughs) but for everything else it wasn't normal and I was giving really low scores and I knew I needed to be absolutely honest, even though, I mean, at the time I had thoughts of the going to take away, take me away in an ambulance and lock me up. I had those sort of ideas in my head. So it was frightening. But I thought I've got to be honest completely about how I'm feeling. So you went through these questions and you score yourself one to ten. How are you feeling? And then you just paused at the end of it and said, um, yeah, you've got severe anxiety and depression. And that was like it absolutely blew my mind I was like how on earth did that happen it was I was just so shocked I mean I knew I was really ill but I think it's different when somebody says it back to you like I'd almost been thinking oh maybe you'll just say oh yeah you're just feeling a bit bad you might feel better in a few (laughs) I don't know what I was hoping for but what I got was no you're right you're really really ill um and he and he wanted me to take antidepressants straight away and I just accepted it and you know if you'd asked me the week before I'd have probably been quite against and quite resistant to the idea of antidepressants but in that state in that moment it was like this is an emergency situation yeah I need to do whatever I'm being told to do yeah I'm really glad that I did and you know with depressants it's probably likely that they were SSRIs selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors that generally what happens with them is they the they they can almost they don't give you a boost if that makes sense but the serotonin that is produced in your brain they stop it from being reabsorbed into kind of the rest of your body so it just means that you almost have you start to create a base of serotonin to work from so it's not you then have to then go and do the exercise or you know make the life changes to try and boost you know the serotonin production yeah just to try and improve your depressive state but it it does sometimes just give you almost a cushion to to kind of to, to go from yeah yeah that makes sense to, to me it was it was trying to get some sort of stability that I could build from Where, wherever the level was you know even if even if the level is at rock bottom that's still a place you can build from but if you're constantly up and down and you can't get your thinking straight it's very hard to do anything at all so it just provided me that stability that I could then start actually consciously think as you say right what can I do otherwise to help me get better because both of us come from a very, from the work that we do, both of us come from a very practical point of view, don't we? Very much tools in your kit bag, really practical. So, yeah. So I think it is, if you're in a position where you don't feel like you've got the tools in your kit bag to to resolve that. It's more that I couldn't even open 
the kit bag or I, I couldn't even find where it was because I was too busy being thrown around up and down in circles and I just needed the world to stop spinning for long enough to be able to get my toolkit out and see what was in there yeah so we found our toolkit again and how did we start putting ourselves back together and start using the tools in our kit bag so one thing I did early on which was really essential and important was I removed all expectations on myself So going back, if you remember, I was in the middle of building this new life as a well-being life coach and trying to get this business going. And suddenly this had hit me. And it's like, well, is that going to be curtains for the business? And I had to just accept straight away. Well, it might be, but that's just how it's going to be. And not not to worry about that, not to worry about anything except getting myself better. And that was really important because... If I'd had, you know, if I'd been too busy worrying about other people and other things that needed doing, I don't think I would have got anywhere. So I had to take all expectations off myself. And my my job from that moment was to look after myself and to get myself to whatever stage I could. So there was one stage where I wasn't even leaving the house, quite a few weeks, in fact. And I was, I mean, I was actually, this prepared me well for last year. I was actually at the point of, oh, well, if I can't leave the house, that's just the way it'll be. But even if I can feel happier while not leaving the house, that will still be improvement. So there was no grand expectations of I'm going to go back to how I was before. I couldn't have put that kind of pressure on myself. I just wanted to feel a little bit better each day. That's all that the goal was. And one of the things that then started to happen was um, I managed to get myself out into the garden a little bit. And I noticed that once I'd gone into the garden, again, with no expectations to do anything once I was there, just to literally step outside the door. Once I was in the garden, I was then thinking, well, maybe now I'm in the garden, maybe I could go to the other end of the garden. Okay, so I'll do that. And then, oh, now I'm here at the other end of the garden. Maybe I could sit down for a little bit in the sunshine. And maybe the first day I did that, I sat there for two minutes and went back in the house. And then the second day, maybe five minutes. And then the next day, maybe 10 minutes. And then what I started to notice, and I'm sure this is a direct impact on the brain of, you know, being out in nature and in sunlight. But because my brain was so deprived of whatever it needed, I noticed as I went back into the house, almost like a feeling of, almost like a euphoric feeling of, like I've just had a really good hit of something. Like going back into the house, I felt like, whoa, that was really good. Whatever that did for me, being outside, had just elevated me to a whole other level of how I felt. And it might have only like lasted for 10 minutes or 15 minutes, but at that point, being able to feel good for 10 or 15 minutes was like a real big achievement. Yeah. And and I use that to get me through when, you know, I would then go through hours and hours of feeling absolutely awful. But I in my mind, I was thinking about yeah, I'm going to look forward to the next time I can go outside and the next time I can feel a bit better again. And so rather than seeing it as a continuous being rock bottom, it was more of a sometimes I was rock bottom. Sometimes I had 10 minutes of feeling a little bit better and then down yeah. and up and down and up. But I was absolutely again, I was I was as astonished at how powerful being outside was on my mental state as as how shocked I'd been at how suddenly I'd become ill. It was a similar kind of scale. 
I was like, wow, this is really, really powerful. So once I'd recognised that, I just tried to spend as much time outside as I could. And that was really helpful. Brilliant. And was there any any other steps that you took? Yeah, so I did yoga. Yeah. Of course, my work was always in movement and, you know, getting the benefit of being active. So initially, I tried a little bit of walking. But as I explained, I was quite nervous about leaving the house. Um, So yoga made it easier because I could just do that at home. So I got into a routine of doing yoga pretty much every day and sitting outside. Food became really important, like more important than normal. (laughs) One of the first things I did when I kind of hit this emergency button was I immediately stopped having any alcohol or any caffeine just overnight. In a way that was anxiety driven because I was actually scared what effect it might have on me if I had some. Um, but I was at least a few months caffeine free, alcohol free, and I'm sure that must have helped. I wasn't really eating that well. I lost my appetite, which anyone who knows me knows that's the complete opposite of my normal personality. <laughs> and I didn't want to eat at all. So I had to be really mindful to try and eat something and, and try and eat some vegetables and eat some fruit and it sounds so simple saying it now but at the time these are like really sort of serious like I have to make sure I eat an apple kind of steps step by step but again it's not about it's never about pressure or saying oh you've you've got to do it all perfectly it's just like what's the next thing like okay so I've been in the garden so the next thing maybe I could eat an apple oh that's good I've achieved eating an apple so the next thing is maybe having a glass of water and it's just little things like that and not trying to almost the opposite of what I'd done when I'd become ill was I was trying to fix the whole world it was almost the opposite of that it's like don't try to fix everything at once I just need to do the thing that's right in front of me now yeah just one step at a time yeah so you were brave and you reached out for help what support were you provided with so I had my medication from the GP which was great and he actually recommended there was a local charity in the town where I live where you can actually go for counselling support and there was a bit of a waiting list to get in it took a while to get me in but I did go there and have some sort of talking therapy there, which was really helpful. The rest of it, I pretty much did myself. I mean, I, I reached out to, to friends. Um, I was very open right from the beginning about what was going on. I didn't really see any reason why not to be, to be honest. And I had some friends that had had a similar experience in you know previous years. So once I once I did feel like I could get out the house, I had a few meetings with people and they explained how the recovery had worked for them. So I had a little bit of a understanding of maybe what I might expect. But yeah, so it was I mean, it was limited, the sort of external support, but it was enough because I think I had I had enough of the my own things to do for myself that I could see was working. And I knew I knew where I could reach out to if I wanted any more help. Yeah, that's good. But I suppose, you know, like what happened with me. I didn't have those well-being tools in my kit bag when I crashed and burned, really. No. So it starts to get me really passionate about why we don't teach these things to people as a life skill and, you know, why in schools, in businesses, it's not part of our kind of standard personal development 
because it's just prevention, isn't it? Yeah, and it's it needs to be normalised. So for so long, it's been seen as a, a separate thing. Like you, you're either an okay person or you're like a mentally ill person that needs dealing with separately over here. Yeah. But actually, most people will experience at least some kind of mental health issue. And it's not, it isn't the people over here. It's all of us. Yeah. And it, it needs to be seen as more normal. And it is it is improving. It's still got a long way to go. And I completely agree with you. I mean, this, this is only my second story of a <laughs> breakdown. I had my first one where I was in a very different place and I didn't know much about well-being type support then. Um, and at that time, I went to a women's well-being retreat, which was absolutely brilliant. But again, I still had to just follow my own instincts. I mean, I was working at a company at the time I had my first burnout and I wouldn't have dreamed of telling them what was going on. Yeah. The thought never even crossed my mind. Yeah. They would be open and supportive to help me. I felt like I had to go outside and around them and get help from somewhere else. And that really does need to change. Yeah, it definitely does. So with all those things that you put in place, how long did it take you to kind of get back to you? Yes, it's an interesting question this. So so it was June, it was almost exactly two years ago when I became ill in 2019. So through June, July, I was kind of operating on a, I don't know if I'm ever going to work again kind of standpoint, but at least I'll try and feel better. By August, I was toying with the idea of maybe I could do a little bit of work, but I wasn't sure how it would go. And by September, I'd started, I think I started off doing like two hours a day or something like that. I had a lot of discussions with my counsellor about this because it was the the return to normal life, as it were, was the part I was most concerned about because it had happened so suddenly. I was really um, hypervigilant for what might trigger it again. Yeah. So I, I came back into working very gradually. So starting from around the September and going back to networking events and things like that really helped. And then by the January of 2020, I was running a new program with clients and it was still quite, you know, small level, but I felt like I was in a place where, you know, I can work again and I can live my life and I've kind of got my head around how to live alongside because, you know, problems with the climate haven't gone away. I worked out how to live alongside it. So yeah, all in all, I would say around six months, around six months in total. And then, of course, we had lovely 2020. So that was an interesting next stage to walk into. It definitely was. Now, with the pause on the world in some ways last year, did that help you to, because it does seem to have provoked maybe more thought about our climate? Well, I I can certainly say that I was absolutely delighted when the plane stopped flying around and, you know, and there was more nature coming in and I, you know, and other people were sort of complaining about not being able to go places. And I'm kind of sat there going, yay. (laughs) (laughs) So this often puts me in a, in a interesting position. It's interesting. My, my take on it is it's still not going far enough or fast enough, but what I can see is there are, there are people, more and more people, that realise that serious action needs to be taken. 
and I wouldn't put my bets either way at the moment, which is probably a good thing because I would have probably put all my bets in the negative not very long ago. So the fact that I could see it going either way is probably an improvement. Um, but there's a lot more, a lot more that needs to be done. Um, but I am grateful that people have started to at least realise the scale of the problem. But it is so hard because we, we need to know how real this threat is to be able to take the action. At the same time, if we all go around having mental breakdowns every time we realise how bad the threat is, that's not going to help either. So it's a very fine line. And I really feel for the scientists that are out on the front of this. You know, those those people that have got those numbers to hand that can see how quickly things are going downhill. I don't think I could work in one of those jobs. And I am sure there must be a lot of mental health issues going on in that sector right now. Um, and so I really hope they're getting the right kind of support because it's it's a huge challenge for everybody on this planet. But as I say, we have to find a way to kind of live alongside the fear to be able to tackle it. And you mentioned when we were talking about a few things that, you know, really worried you when you were in the house. So could you give me some examples about the things in the house? I know you look back on them now and think they're funny, but. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So um, one example was clearly my, my mind's in a sort of hypervigilant state of all CO2 emissions going into the atmosphere is a terrible thing, which don't get me wrong, it is a terrible thing, but I can't click my fingers and stop that overnight. And one example was um, when I was lying in bed ill and my husband, bless him, trying to sort the housework out, had the tumble dryer on. And I'd be trying to get to sleep and I could hear this tumble dryer. And all that was going around my head was that's using electricity, that's putting CO2 into the atmosphere. It's just like really, really made me feel anxious. But I knew that I knew that that was also my mental state. And so I didn't say anything. I just sort of let it go. Did I let it go? I let it happen. We'll, we'll call it that. I let it happen. Yeah. So, so that was one thing. And any, I remember being in the garden. I didn't mention this before, but we were in the garden, and our garden was really overgrown. And so, my husband wanted to cut it back a bit and just tidy it up. And I was like, I just couldn't bear the thought of him cutting a plant, like a single branch or leaf or anything. I was like, no, just leave it just the thought of the slightest damage being done would really make me feel a lot worse. And so he left it. And then a few months later, when I started feeling better and spending time in the garden was helping me, I actually cleared it all myself. And I, and I was the one that cut it back eventually. And I'm getting more plants and flowers in there and trying to make it more diverse and better for pollinators and all this sort of thing. But at the time when I was really ill, I just couldn't even bear the thought of a single branch being cut. It's, it's that extreme. We talked about, didn't we, when, you know, like if you have a phobia, like say agoraphobia, for example, it's like you're working towards that moment where you can kind of go outside and then you can go a bit further. And then so how did you kind of tackle progress, you know, in terms of what you were having to deal with? Yeah, because um as I say, that the threat is still there. And so it, it isn't like a kind of anxiety where you may be worried about something that's perhaps you can see it's irrational. It's very, eco-anxiety is a very rational response. It's possibly the most rational response you could have to what's happening. 
So it's how to then continue life and not just to continue it and exist, but to even be able to enjoy it, which was ultimately my goal. And I had to kind of seek more spiritual ways of approaching things, I think is the best way to explain it. Because actually, when you boil things down, you realise we're all going to die at some point anyway. It's just the timing and the method by which we die is the bit we don't know. So yes, maybe in my mind, I was super anxious that things were speeding up and we were all going to die a lot sooner than I'd originally (laughs) hoped. But there's still a life in between that. And I guess I did the sort of bargaining with myself in terms of, okay, well, let's Let's say the planet's got two years left, which it turns out it did. So that's good. Let's say the planet's got two years left. That's still two years that I can either be sat here being worried about it or enjoy life and get the most out of life now. Let's say there's a year left. Let's say there's six months left. Let's say we're all going up in a fiery ball next weekend. That would be horrendous. Yet life is so precious and the time between now and the weekend for billions and billions of people on the planet is still precious and something we can still appreciate and enjoy. And that's what I became really focused on is that none of us know what's going to happen. And of course, this was all before the pandemic, which kind of proved my point, but nobody knows what's going to happen. All we can really control is what's happening right now and making the best of right now. And that's all you can ask of anybody, whatever situation they're in. Oh, it's very profound, this, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) So uh, it wouldn't be right without me asking about how you now switch off so that you can switch on and perform at your best. So it's being in nature clearly has become a a theme for me. So even before this happened, I loved being outdoors. I did triathlon. I loved being out in mountains in the Lake District, swimming open water, that kind of thing. And since having this experience and really seeing how powerful being outdoors can be on your mental state, I have to get outside. And I'm lucky that I do live sort of on the edge of the countryside. So there's fields and things I can walk around. But even if I'm walking amongst buildings, you've still got the breeze on your face. You've still got, you know, if it's raining, that's still feeling nature against your skin. You can still see the little weeds poking out at the side of a fence. And it's like, yes, it's surviving. (laughs) You can still celebrate all those little things. And we weren't designed to be in these boxes all the time. And it's just remembering that I can go outside, whether I'm exercising, which I think is great, obviously, but even if I'm not exercising, um, that's a good way to disconnect. Great. And have you got any how-tos or any tips that you believe help you to live life to the full? So your personal flourishing formula for life. There's probably a few, but I think I'm going to focus on the thinking about what's happening right now, because everything happens now. I know this is the, you know, Eckhart Tolle, Power of Now book and all this sort of thing, which I have read, but it's quite hard to follow. But it's very much about what can I do today? So not worrying about how I'm going to feel next week or next month, 
but what could I do today that would help me thrive and feel better in my life? And sometimes that's going for a walk for 10 minutes. Sometimes it's having a sneaky bar of chocolate, but that's okay. (laughs) It's about, it's our life. We get to choose what we want to do. And that's been really important to me because being very scientific, analytical, quite a forward thinker, there's a big tendency to always worry about the future. Um, So I just bring myself back to the present as much as possible. Now in the present, well, sort of in the past, but it's going to be in the present. You've recently written a book about your active well-being methodology. So what date does that book come out? So it's being released on the 3rd of June, um, the little book of active well-being. And it's available to pre-order I have been privy to have a sneaky peek prior to its launch it's a lovely book with really simple helpful chapters and at the end of each chapter there's almost like a self-help sort of self-reflection section self-reflection yeah that's a good description yeah and it's it's something that you can kind of pick up and put down it's really easy to read isn't it Yeah, I hope so. I really wanted to make the experience of reading it a nice experience as much as the information you get from it. Because I love books and I love reading and I've read tons of self-help books like you wouldn't believe. And um, some feel like quite hard work and quite stressful. I wanted this to feel really nice and reassuring that, you know, if you manage to do all the tasks in it and you get actions for things you want to do, then that's brilliant. But if all you manage to do is is read it and think, oh, yeah, that's OK. I can see that a bit differently now. That's fine, too. It's like for any level of whatever people want to take from it. Yeah. So you've just mentioned how much you love books. So are there any books, podcasts, communities, anyone, anything that have been a, a key part to your journey that you may feel may benefit our listeners? Um, so I'll probably mention a few. So before all this happened that we've been talking about, where I did my well-being life coach training was at Raw Horizons Academy near Thirst. That's the well-being retreat that I went to when I had my first burnout and they really opened my eyes to a whole new world of well-being. So I'd love to give them a special mention. A lady that I've worked with quite a lot in the past few years and really helped me come through that um, anxiety and depression episode as well is a lady called Andrea Morrison who is a coach and she coaches on the foundations of something called the three principles which is really around an understanding of ways to look at life. It's quite philosophical, a bit of spiritual blended with philosophical kind of how to think about things and make your way through the world. So she's been brilliant and she has a courageous females program, which is full of brilliant, brave, incredible women, which is really good. And the the book that I'd like to mention, I actually brought it along with me because I was telling you about it the other day. It's the Dalai Lama's Little Book of Inner Peace. Because when I was really poorly and I just wanted to read something that would feel uplifting and make me feel maybe things might be okay, I really went to this solution-focused place of, right, I need something spiritual. Who do I know that's spiritual? 
I went on Amazon. Oh, the Dalai Lama, he's quite spiritual. Let's <laughs> that book. So, but this um, little book of inner peace, it's really um, pick it up, put it down, little snippets of his, you know, philosophy, um, religious teachings, I suppose, but also his life, because he's had an incredibly difficult life and how he's seen that. And, you know, he has to live alongside suffering in his life and yet still get up, gets up and inspires people every day, despite the horrible things that happened to him. So that was really helpful for me as well. Because I think when the whole world feels a little bit against you, it's really helpful to get different perspectives and see how other people are making their way through it. And that's what we want to do on the Human Reboot. So thank you so much for sharing so vulnerably your story about eco-anxiety. If anyone wants to get in touch with you, Diane, how do they do that? So you can email me directly, diane at fitbe co.uk you can contact me through my website that's also um, fitb.co.uk I've got a Facebook groups and things that I'm sure will be in the show notes but yeah just anybody just reach out to me if you'd like to know anything more about what we've been talking about be very happy to to help and we will pop the link to Diane's new book in the show notes too so thank you again thank you Emma Thank you for listening to the Human Reboot podcast. I'm Emma Last, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave me a five-star podcast review and visit thehumanrebootmovement.com where you can find downloadable free resources, sign up to my mailing list, or connect with me on social. So that's thehumanrebootmovement.com. Let's switch off so we can switch on. It's time for your human reboot.